Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. It's always the case that when you're looking to solidify your power, you've got to create an enemy, a common enemy, so you can get more people to rally to your cause. And Jews have been the brunt of that. Christians have been the brunt of that many times over and are still the brunt of that. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian resumes his teaching on Daniel chapter 3. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Let's open up to Daniel chapter 3. I mentioned Dr. John Lennox's book, Against the Flow, is what it's called. And it's, uh, he uses Daniel as his text, and it's somewhat of a commentary on the book of Daniel, very excellent one. But he he comes at it from the angle of, of Daniel being in the court in Babylon and what the world was like at the time. And so, you know, here's, um, here's God's man in the place of idolatry, but he's God's witness there. And so the title, Going Against the Flow, Daniel and his friends, they're, you know, everybody's going in the same direction. Everybody's following the directions of the, the culture. And yet Daniel and his friends are standing against that. And so as we come to the third chapter, it's a story we're most of us familiar with, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace. Dr. Lennox, he entitled this third chapter, When the State Becomes God. And of course, there have been many iterations of that throughout history. That's nothing new. And that's what was happening in Babylon at the time. But he said this, and I found this to be interesting. I think it's a good, good thing to start with and to think about. He said in chapters one and three, Daniel draws our attention to two parallel yet opposite trends that he had come to observe during his long life at the pinnacle of power. Even though there is a drive to relativize absolutes, men and women cannot live without absolutes. So they eventually take something of relative value and absolutize it. That is... They regard it as the core value that determines their attitude to everything else. And then he says this, from time immemorial, the obvious candidates have been the state, power, wealth, and sex. Wow. That is the history of the world right there just revolving around those things. And, and I was thinking as I read this, even before I got to the last sentence there and the four things that he named, I was thinking about how currently in our cultural moment, 
sex, having first of all been relativized, and now it is being absolutized. And so it, it is becoming for many in the culture a core value and everything else is judged in light of that sexual perspective, which is essentially that sex is a human right and everybody should be able to express themselves sexually as they deem right. And therefore no one can criticize that, no one can challenge that, no one can say that any kind of sexual behavior is wrong. And as they continue to try to absolutize this, it's coming to the point where people are being punished if they do not fall in line with the perspective on it, with the thinking on it. And it's just an, another manifestation of this taking the relative and absolutizing it. So that's what happens here in the third chapter. So King Nebuchadnezzar, remember, he had that dream that, that rocked his world. He did not know what to make of it, except he knew it was something serious. It was so serious that he knew that he had to have the correct interpretation of it. And so you remember he called on all of his wise men, not only to give the interpretation, but to make sure they weren't just making something up. He said, you have to tell me what the dream was, and then I will know you can tell me the interpretation. And you remember they said, King, nobody's ever, <laughs> that can't be done. Nobody's ever asked anyone to do that. And Nebuchadnezzar was very insistent, you either do it or you're dead. And he put out an edict to execute all the wise men. You remember Daniel steps into the picture with his friends. They pray, they seek God. God gives Daniel the understanding of what the dream was and its interpretation. And it was the statue, the head of gold, the arms and chest of silver and so forth. And then the, the rock not made without hands smiting the statue in its feet. The rubble of the statue blows away like dust in the wind. And the rock that strikes the statue becomes a great mountain that fills the earth. And the interpretation is that in the days of, of these 10 kings represented by the toes, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely blown away. He falls down before Daniel, prostrates himself, and appoints Daniel to be head over all of the wise men in Babylon. So that's what's already happened. Now, something new unfolds. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of all gold. So some time has passed. Nebuchadnezzar was, was really moved initially by what had transpired. Now the, probably the thrill of all of that and the, the fear of all that has worn off. And he's starting to think about it. And the essence of the message was that you're the head of gold, but you're gonna be replaced by 
the arms and the, and the chest of silver. So your kingdom is gonna be replaced by another kingdom. And apparently after a while, Nebuchadnezzar thought, I don't like that. And that's not gonna happen. No, the head of gold is gonna, it, it's gonna, my kingdom's gonna remain forever. And so he makes a statue that's all of gold and he sets it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And this image of gold is about 90 feet tall and about nine feet wide. So it's just this thing that you would see from quite a distance erected there on the plain of Dura. And then he summoned the satraps and prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. So, I mean, you know, think about this. It's probably a date is set and the edict has gone out. On this particular day, everyone's going to acknowledge the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar by bowing down to this statue. So the word goes out through all of the kingdom. And so they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So here it is. The state has complete power in the person of Nebuchadnezzar. He embodies the state and state power. And now he's just saying, this is what you're commanded to do. And if you don't do it, I'll throw you in the fiery furnace. Just very straightforward. No going to court for your rights, no appealing the sentence. You fail to obey and you'll be immediately eliminated. That's about as powerful as any one person. And, and you know, when the state comes to a place like that, it is a, it's a totalitarian, it's a dictatorship. This has happened many times over since then. It's happened in the um, not too distant past and it's still happening in certain parts of the world today. You think of somewhere like North Korea. This would pretty much be the way things function in that country today. So as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
And at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the gold image, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing fire. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So now, Nebuchadnezzar knows who these people are because remember, they're the close friends of Daniel and they're in the position they're in because Daniel, who has the favor of the king, he got them their jobs. And so as we read it, you see Nebuchadnezzar is, he's kind of baffled. Like, wait, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, could this really be true? He was expecting more loyalty from them because of the position that they held. But let's just notice how they come to the king with this accusation and they're emphasizing the fact that they're Jews. So they're not just, hey, there's, there's, there's this group of people out here that aren't obeying your edict, uh, these Jews. Now, you can imagine that there was a ton of jealousy, envy among these rulers toward these Judeans that had come into their midst and actually been elevated above them. So there's all kinds of intrigue. There's all kinds of personal ambition and things that are, that are driving this. But they see this as an opportunity to get rid of these men. And so they emphasize the fact that they are Jews. You know, not unlike other systems that develop like this, there's somebody, there's some particular group of people that are identified as the problem. And then the propaganda starts regarding that group of people. Now, of course, we know historically that that happened to the Jews many times over. And the most obvious manifestation of that was in Germany with the, the whole situation with the, the Reich and the Holocaust and the war and all of that. But, you know, the Jews were the target. They were the scapegoats. They were all the problems in the country went back to these people. And this is always the case. It's always the case that when you're looking to solidify your power, you've got to create an enemy, a common enemy, so you can get more people to rally to your cause. And Jews have been the brunt of that. Christians have been the brunt of that many times over and are still the brunt of that. And, you know, depends on where you're at and and at what time, different groups of people. But this is just a, a common tactic of the enemy. 
So Nebuchadnezzar, it says he was furious and he summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, if you go back in the previous chapter, remember after Daniel had revealed the, the meaning of the, the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, he exalted the God of heaven. And he even said, if, if he heard anyone speaking anything against the God of heaven, he would destroy them and turn their house into a, a heap of rubble. So we, we see how, um, you know, he goes from a, a moment where it seems like he's, he's being awakened to the reality of God and now he's just drifted so far back that he is marveling that they could be worshiping another God beside his gods. And yet he knew that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worshiped the God of heaven. You know, most of these kinds of people in history have been, you know, crazy. <laughs> I mean, really, truly, you know, like irrational. Like, you know, on the one hand, they seem like the such nice people. You know, you, you probably know this. I mean, you know, there were many people that, that thought Adolf Hitler was actually a really nice guy. And in certain circumstances, he could appear to be very kind and generous. And, but he was a beast, just slightly under the surface. And so I'm sure between the time of the, of the revelation of the dream and, and this, I'm sure these guys probably had hopeful thoughts about Nebuchadnezzar and about their position and about how, man, you know, he, he seems to be really, you know, he's kind of sympathetic toward us and it's, it's all good. And then it just like switches that fast. That's how it is with crazy people. So he then gives them a chance to get things right. He says, now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. This is your chance, guys. We can get this sorted out. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So, you know, Nebuchadnezzar has, in his, in his own mind, he's elevated himself to a deity. He's greater than all the gods. What God is going to deliver you from me? I'm, I am God. And again, this is, this is a trait of dictators, right? The dictator in, the, in North Korea, they... they that family claims divinity. 
And this has happened again and again and again. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, you know, I think when we read this story, we know the end of the story, right? We know what happened. When they said this, they did not know the end of the story. They didn't say to each other, hey, guys, don't worry. He's going to throw us into the furnace, but we're not even going to get burnt. As a matter of fact, God himself is going to come and join us. They didn't know that was going to happen. And, and I think sometimes, we, because we already know the end of the story, we might look at the story and miss all of the human drama that was actually taking place at this time. So these guys are, I mean, they're basically being told, you're gonna be killed, and there's no reason whatsoever to doubt the word of Nebuchadnezzar. He's killed many people already. And, you know, if you, if you start thinking about it from that perspective, you can imagine that there, there could have possibly been, and, and we don't know exactly, you know, the time frame. did this happen in an hour? Did this happen over a day? You know, how long this whole little drama uh, was being worked out. But you can only imagine when you think about the, the reality of it, how they would have suffered emotionally over the prospect of what was a very real possibility for their, their lives, that they would lose them very quickly. And I think sometimes it's, it's good to pause and think about it a little bit. Because I know even myself, I, I mean, I know I can just read through the story and I know the story and I'm so familiar with it. And you lose the human element of it. You, you lose the the actual drama that was there. And if we lose that, then we miss out on something that's a blessing to us. Because if we dig a little bit deeper into that, then we get a little bit more of an understanding of how the Lord might have met them in the midst of even that um, desperate moment. But it would have been immediately obvious to them that this was the hardest test of loyalty to God they had ever faced. December, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, Is Christmas Unbelievable? 
Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story by Rebecca McLaughlin. It's easy for the holiday season to draw our attention to shopping, parties, programs, and events, while the Christmas story is relegated to the statue of a myth or fairy tale for children. But is the Christmas story actually grounded in history? Well, in her book, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story, Rebecca McLaughlin tackles four basic questions surrounding Christmas. She deals with the questions surrounding if Jesus was a historical figure, if we can take seriously the historical accounts of the gospel, and if the virgin birth can actually be believed, and why it all matters. If you know a person who is skeptical that the Christmas story is true, or if you are a skeptic yourself, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story by Rebecca McLaughlin. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Daniel. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.